Welcome to the Youth Voices of the Six, a podcast made by youth for youth and everyone in between, powered by Toronto Team LNM of Pivot 2020 Canada. Firstly, we would like to take this time to acknowledge that our work takes place on unceded lands and traditional territories and strives to honor the land on which we work, study, and gather. The land I am standing on today as a team member of Toronto, also known as Tuckeronto, is located on the treaty lands and territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit and traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, and the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to the many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. The territory is within the lands protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. This podcast is sponsored by Pivot 2020, a Canada-wide youth employment research project led by Youthful Cities and Simon Fraser University Centre for Dialogue. The aim of this project is to provide youth with employment, help youth gain experience in research, and explore other creative outlets that can help inform how youth in Canadian cities recover post-COVID. Today, our topic will be focusing on Canada's immigration and refugee systems, and specifically the experiences of racialized minorities. We're your hosts, Mitch and Sophia. Mitch is a recent immigrant to Canada studying social science and humanities at the University of Toronto. And Sophia is a refugee that has been in Canada for over a decade studying engineering. So Mitch, you've studied a little bit about Canadian immigration during your undergraduate degree. Care to tell us more? So generally speaking, immigration in Canada started since the confederation of the country, which was formed in around 1867. So the first immigration act ever in Canada was created in 1869. And today there are over 250,000 immigrants approximately who land in Canada on an annual basis. And basically one out of almost every five people in Canada is foreign born. But there is a lot of sort of contestability about the term immigration. So based on what you've been saying, uh, we also know that the Immigration Act was created by the Canadian government, and this was not consulted with the Indigenous people. Would you like to kind of explain how there's a politically charged issue there between immigration issues and Indigenous people? Yeah, sure. So the idea of immigration, it's a really contested term because of the history of Canada being a colonized territory, whereby Basically, historically, the British and French colonists displaced many indigenous communities who've been residing in North America for thousands of years prior. So basically, we're living on stolen land. And indigenous people didn't necessarily have any consultation or power over influencing immigration policy set by the Canadian government. There's also sort of an internalized white-centric narrative, quote-unquote, of the history of Canada. So for example, immigration tests, the Canadian citizenship oath, the public education system here in Canada... It's sort of a way that ignores all these historical issues of Indigenous Canadians and their colonized experience. And because of that, there's a lack of reconciliation, really. And an anecdote I have of that personally is uh, I went to a reconciliation community workshop and I spoke to the invigilator after. Uh, It was here in Toronto, too. Basically, what they were saying was a lot of sort of social equity groups that are championing minority rights tend to not necessarily listen to or really proactively go out of their way to learn about the Indigenous sort of experience of colonization here in Canada. And 
there was sort of like a in recent years, competitions for like local federal government grants, even for sort of these different groups and communities. And sometimes what apparently different, like sort of ethnic minority groups who are trying to like strive to represent their own ethnic community, they tend to try and like tag on the fact that, oh, we've worked with indigenous groups in this capacity. We've collaborated in the past with like such and such First Nations awareness groups and, you know, that sort of rhetoric. But actually, when you check in to see whether that's been done, the complaint that this invigilator had in this reconciliation workshop was that these groups don't often do that. There's often just like a sort of tokenist notion that people connect with them when really there's no hard work. They don't really actually proactively send any delegates to go to their workshops or actually do the hard work of researching how to be an ally. So yeah, all of this is just essentially pointing to the fact it's a systemic issue that Canadians haven't collectively addressed yet. And especially for immigrants, it's important that we kind of look at that as the fact that we're, on one hand, we're coming to this new country, but it's on colonized land and we're risking reproducing a cycle of exploitation if we don't acknowledge that history. Yeah, you definitely think that because the majority of immigrants are coming also from colonized countries that they would have a better understanding of, of what we're going through. But it's definitely that white-centric narrative and systemic issue that makes it extremely difficult for us to kind of get out of that mindset. Aside from that, we know that even the immigration system itself is not very open or transparent. And you mentioned Canada's immigration process is still based on a point system. And I was wondering if you could explain further on how this system is used and what it means. Yeah, totally. So basically, the immigration system in Canada isn't necessarily transparent or an open process, quote unquote. Basically, Canada's immigration process for, say, permanent residency, it's based on a point system, also known as the comprehensive ranking system, which requires applicants to score about 67 points to qualify for entry into the country. So these points are awarded based on sort of different categories, including age, work experience, educational credentials, and this is a really important one, English language proficiency. So for example, your IELTS exam score. There's lots of other factors like income and sort of other social capital a person may have applying, but basically the system is very discriminatory, especially towards non-white immigrants from developing or underdeveloped countries, especially that don't have, for example, English as a first language. Yeah, and we know definitely that you know, at the beginning, the majority of immigrants, maybe in the late 1800s, early 1900s, were mainly European immigrants. However, this is shifting to to having more Black and people of color immigrants. And this is definitely an issue that the immigration system has. Do you know any specifics about the immigration issues that are occurring for BIPOC communities? Yeah, in terms of like uh, issues specific to BIPOC people in Canada, in terms of how they've been impacted by immigration policy. So Canadian immigration is just like historically disadvantaged people of color um, who are immigrants, um, especially from, like I mentioned before, non-white majority countries. And oftentimes they're immediately sort of um, tending towards downward social mobility and precarious sort of economic and social conditions if they've just newly arrived in Canada. So like if you're a non-white immigrant, you're 
you're probably going to face things like um, the de-skilling or devaluing of your uh, foreign higher education credentials. You're undervaluing foreign skills and experience. The immigration system is also gendered. The point system, it actually often favors men and often relegates women to sort of a dependent status as like wives or mothers at times. And there's often like um, unfamiliar labor practices that exacerbate those stereotypes. So like non-white immigrants who especially lack social or cultural capital, like local Canadian borns who've had had more time to assimilate into Canadian society overall, they find it harder to integrate here. And there's just a bunch of negative stereotypes overall. So like settlement agencies often construct immigrant women, again, as sort of like cheap labor, domestically oriented because of the whole like wife slash mother um, archetype and sort of design programs that reinforce like a domestic role. And there's also a lot of like survival employment issues. So this is when agencies often urge immigrants to take any job they can find. And that's like super problematic, essentially. Yeah, and definitely aside from like the negative stereotypes of, of immigrants and, and the way that the immigration system work, there's definitely uh, racist stereotypes that are playing in the in the immigration system itself. And we know that this has happened throughout history in Canada. You know uh, of the yellow peril. Would you like to explain um, how this took place? Yeah, so... Yellow Peril was basically um, a historically racist, xenophobic stereotype of Chinese immigrants that applies both to like Canada and the United States during the 19th and 20th century. It portrayed Chinese people especially um, as sort of aliens, suspicious, or like people who were threats to the economic and social security of especially what was then a white dominant society. So you know, in response to this sort of stereotype, there was sort of like a model minority archetype assumed by the Chinese community, especially. And this was basically um, the idea that mi minorities who gain sort of gradual socioeconomic success serve as sort of a model for other minority groups. And it's often applied to, again, East Asian Chinese immigrants who are perceived to be like really productive laborers because of their like sort of cultural values, quote unquote, that tend towards valuing education and like career based mobility. But yeah, this is all just reinforcing a sort of stereotype of the servitude of like Asian people as just productive laborers and like nothing else about their sort of racialized history that people have had to go through as immigrants, especially. Yeah. And we still see these uh, racist tendencies even today, right? Yeah, totally. There's, especially after 9-11 here in sort of the West, there was the rise of Islamophobia. So, that, you know, and that's basically the fear, hatred or prejudice against sort of Muslim communities and um, sort of Islam as a religion more broadly, a sort of discriminatory attitude. And, you know, in Canada alone, we've had sort of in Quebec, especially the burqa ban policy. There have been throughout different provinces here attacks on Muslim communities like mosques and even just targeting random individuals who are visibly Muslim. And there's also just Islamophobic media and rhetoric that portrays their community as sort of a cultural other and sort of synonymous with like religious fundamentalism and terrorism, which we really have to address. Yeah. 
For sure. And this is obviously making, you know, BIPOC in general in Canada uh, more vulnerable to to a lot of things. And one of those things right now is is what we're experiencing, which is COVID, where the impact for uh, for cases is higher in BIPOC communities. Would you like to explain a little bit more on how um, immigrants are being affected by COVID? Yeah, sure. Um, overall, you know, I think COVID's basically had a disadvantageous impact um, negatively the um, immigrant community, um, BIPOC in general even. So like, for example, in Toronto alone, 83% of cases reported in Toronto area have been of Black people being positively um, affected by the COVID virus, basically. And even within all this, there's especially sort of the rise of anti-Asian and overall anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, Chinatowns all over Canada have seen a decline in foot traffic, a lot of sort of racial stereotypes, again, as Chinatown is a dirty, quote unquote, um, like germ ridden and whatnot, that kind of rhetoric. There have been even racist attacks against um, East Asian immigrants, not too long ago, there was an attack or a stabbing against Koreans in Montreal. There's also um, sort of bureaucratic issues if you're applying for immigration or citizenship. Um, PR and citizenship processing times are now longer than before due to a lack of staff being available to process those um, applications. And so there's a huge backlog and all these issues just add up to exacerbate the burden on immigrants here. Yeah. Um, thank you, Mitch, for enlightening us today on immigration policy issues. It is very clear that Canada still has a long way to go to repair Indigenous relationships and also it needs to improve the immigration system so it is more accessible to Black and people of colour immigrants. Um, as a society, we need to have these discussions on the effects that racism has on immigrants and other BIPOC so we can ensure that our opportunities and resources are equally attainable for future immigrants. Absolutely. So without further ado, now for a break. So tune in next for more on Canada's refugees and a personal interview with Sophia's experiences as a refugee. Welcome back. So now we're going to turn it over to Sophia, who will give us some background information on Canada's refugee system. So Sophia, you've had a great deal of knowledge um, being a refugee to Canada yourself. So would you care to tell us more in terms of the general um, background history of Canada's refugee system from your own experience and knowledge? Yeah, sure. Um, so I came to Canada roughly 15 years ago, but before uh, starting with that, um, it's good to kind of define uh, what a refugee means. And according to the Geneva Convention, a refugee is a person who is outside his or her home country and who has a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality membership of a particular social group or political opinion. If we look further uh, into it, Canada has a long history of, of welcoming refugees. Um, the first one being in the late 1700s with uh, 3,000 Black loyalists among them free men and slaves that fled the oppression of the American Revolution and settled in Nova Scotia. Following this, however, it took a while for there to be a proper definition of refugees around the world. And this didn't occur until the Refugee Convention that took place in 1951. This was established to assert that a refugee should not be returned to a country where they face serious threats to their life of freedom. 
even though Canada is well known for being a country that accepts refugees, they didn't sign this convention until 1969, 18 years after it was adopted by the United Nations. And it was never made a legislation until 1976 when they established the Immigration Act, which is the, the modern one now. It was setting the cornerstone of modern immigration policy. Um, the express goals included the promotion of Canada's demographic, economic, social, and cultural goals, family reunification, non-discrimination, and the fulfillment of Canada's international obligations in relation to refugees. Yeah, so related to this sort of legal framework you discussed there and defined, uh, sort of what are the specific ways that refugees can come into Canada? Yeah, there is two ways. There is a resettlement and then there is a, a refugee claim process. Uh, the resettlement process is usually the most common. There's two, uh, two versions. There is a government-assisted refugee. You receive support on your arrival from the government. And then there's privately sponsored refugees who receive support from a private group, uh, whether it's a community or an NGO in Canada. Canada's private sponsorship of refugees program has actually allowed Canadians to offer protection and a new home to more than 225,000 refugees since 1979 people that come through the private sponsor refugees, they don't receive any funding from the government. It is up to the private sponsor to provide the funding. Right. So given all this information about the system of like how refugees arrive into Canada, sort of what are some basic facts you can um, sort of speak to about how refugees get along in Canada and sort of like how they manage to contribute even to Canadian society and the economy? Yeah, so um, contrary to popular belief, refugees can do a lot for the economy. But the main thing to know is that Canada only welcomes uh, very few of the world's refugees. They actually only welcome 1.5%. And um, the majority of refugees are in the global south, and only a small amount are found in Canada and other wealthy countries. I mean, since looking at this, Canada has welcomed 1 million refugees since 1980. Uh, it is maybe one of the countries that has welcomed the most. However, this doesn't compare to, to Southern countries. As for the economy, there's this belief that refugees just kind of munch of the government and that they receive more assistance than Canadians themselves do for uh, pension or for welfare. But that's actually not the case. The unemployment rate for refugees aged 25 to 54 is 9%. And the Canadian-born citizens is 6%. However, this changes five years later when refugees have had some time to settle down. And it actually goes down to 6%. And it ends up being the same as those that are born in Canada. Furthermore to that, half of refugees are actually working in high-skilled jobs. So such as doctors, dentists, architects, service managers, software engineers. And 33% um, of them working jobs that required high school or job specific training. So a lot of them are, are actually going back to school, uh, getting their credentials done and, and working in jobs that require college or, or university degrees. So given all this information, it's clear that there's sort of like uh, misconceptions about our refugees and also a lack of understanding of the sort of difficulties to even arrive in Canada as a refugee. So to explore these themes further, um, we'll come back after a short break with a personal interview with Sophia about her personal experiences as a refugee. Stay tuned.
welcome back. So now we're going to turn it over to Sophia once again, so she can tell us more about her personal story as a refugee arriving in Canada. So there's obviously a lot of history to this because you've been here for so many years. Um, so let's start with before you came to Canada. So Sophia, can you tell me about sort of life before arriving here in Canada in terms of what was your childhood like and sort of uh, how that went? Yeah, um, so I arrived to Canada when I was 10. Um, so the majority of my childhood was in Colombia. And uh, my childhood was was pretty normal. I, I went to school. Um, my parents were together. I would see, you know, like have hang out with friends, have parties, um, regular things. This, however, ended up changing a little bit uh, midway throughout. Um, after my parents separated and also uh, in the area that, that we lived in. Yeah, in terms of, uh, can you tell me more about that area in terms of what uh, caused you and your family directly to have to apply as refugees? Was there any sort of situation in that um, environment that you were growing up in? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the environment that we were in, it was the eastern region of Colombia and so with the border of Venezuela. and. Uh, as you know, the northern, southern South America is is known to have uh, quite a, quite a few guerrilla militia groups that are not okay with the with the way that the government handles things. So in our region, there's a group that has quite a lot of authority. The ELN, they're known as the Liberation Army, and they're a guerrilla group, so they're left leaning. And something that they would do, unfortunately, was that they would apply uh, taxes or or fees that you'd have to pay if you were in that region. So in this case, my uncle uh, owned a farm in, in this region and my dad was taking care of it because we lived in the area. And that meant that if you own land in that region, you would have to pay a fee or, or some sort of tax to, to these people or else they would do other things. Uh, they could take your oldest child, so then they would become part of of the militia themselves, they would train your child to be part of the guerrilla group, or they would send someone to kill you. So there is definitely reasons for you to want to pay these fees and, and to make sure that you were never on the wrong side because they had a lot of power. Unfortunately, we ended up getting stuck in the middle of, of a situation between two of the militia groups. In this case, the guerrilla group had been there for a while, but there's this other group in Colombia known as the paramilitary group, and they rose against the left-leaning guerrilla and the government as they're not okay with what um, their ideals and, and purpose and goals were. So when the paramilitary group showed up, they're the same. They, they want to take fees. They demand certain things from you and, and your land. And in this case, the paramilitary group decided that they were going to stay in the farm and they were going to stay there once they arrived. And this caused uh, an issue because now the both groups thought that we were an ally of the other. So the guerrilla group thought that we were allies of the paramilitary group because they stayed in that location. And the paramilitary group thought that we were allies of the guerrilla because you were paying them fees or, or perhaps, you know, selling your, your animals to them. Um, so what happened was that my dad got stuck in the middle of this because they were both, you know, assuming that he was an ally with the other when that was not the case and they both were kind of seeking out to harm him and, and to kill him uh, for this reason. 
first person to go was unfortunately the land manager, uh, the farm manager there. He uh, he unfortunately uh, passed away. He uh, he fleed. And what the groups did was that they abducted his parents. Uh, and this is a paramilitary group. And, and what happens is that they um, let you know that if, if you don't show up, they're going to kill your parents. They're going to kill whoever they abducted. And the purpose is that you have to show up for this to not occur, but also that you show up knowing that you're going to die. And so this man ended up going uh, for the sake of saving his parents. And when, when he went, they, they released his parents and, uh, and they ended up killing him. Mm. However, the, the group was not uh, okay. It wasn't enough for them uh, to just kill the land manager. And so they were also going after my dad, who would just come once, once in a while to administer the farm, make sure that everything was okay. And when this happened, um, my dad ended up fleeing the area and he ended up going back uh, home to, to his city. And my mom thought that this was okay. They were separated uh, and they didn't think that they would come after us because, I mean, it meant that they didn't have that much of a close relationship. We were, we were living with my grandmother for a while now. And, and so what happened was that they came and they, and they warned us that, you know, if my dad didn't show up, they were going to abduct one of us. And so that meant that for a while we were staying in hiding at my grandmother's home and we wouldn't leave the house. And eventually my mom realized that we also had to flee. Um, because we didn't want that to be the case and we were in danger. And, and the other thing is that, you know, they don't always release you. Um, sometimes they do release you if the person shows up. If, if the person shows up, they can, they can still kill you. It, it's, it's up to them. It's how they're feeling, right? Um, so because of that, we ended, up, we ended up fleeing that area and we ended up going to one of the bigger cities and uh, we thought we were okay there. We were, we were staying with my aunt for a little while. And um, unfortunately, that was not the case because um, we encountered someone that was warning us again that, you know, if they had seen my dad, they were asking questions and, and were kind of, uh, again, doing the same thing where they were giving warnings if, if, you know, if he didn't show up, this is what was going to happen. And uh, in that case, my mom realized that we had to move to the capital, move further away from, from the area. And when we arrived to the capital, um, th things were okay. Um, my mom ended up meeting an NGO and the NGO told her that Canada was accepting refugees from Colombia, uh, especially to help with, with all of these uh, uh, guerrillas dis displacing a lot of people. Uh, and, and taking away their land. And um, they said that this, this was perfect because she was young. She was in her mid-30s and she had three children. So there was a lot that would benefit her in, in applying. And so she, she accepted and she decided that she was going to apply. And, and from then on, she went through the whole process. Already, this is, uh, this is already a very complex story of sort of being caught up between different political factionism, the cycle of violence perpetuated by politics and political turmoil, sort of the, the economic coercion and sort of extortion that led to such a life-threatening situation for you and your family. And to be become targeted and have, you know, relations or mutual associates just killed is, it's astounding to think about just to be able to internalize such a traumatic process 
So while all this was going on and your mother started to take those steps to apply for refugee status in Canada, um, can I ask sort of how long did it take for you and your family to become accepted as refugees in Canada? What was the process um, like? Yeah, um, I remember the process taking quite long. It was definitely around a, a year and a half or so. I, I was 10, so I, I wouldn't know a lot of the a lot of the processes, but I know that it, it required a lot of uh, a lot of information, a lot of going to the government lineups, getting getting information approved, testimonies, uh, telling the story, uh, you know, ownerships of, of land and, and financial statuses and, and other things, and and making a, a plea for the reason why you why you deserve to leave your country. Why why are you in danger? And, you know, that requires my mom telling the story over and over again of, of why we're in danger to be able to, you know, have the Canadian government see if they think that this is justified or not and if they want to welcome us, right? So, yeah, so it, it took a year and a half and it, it was very long. It, it requires definitely a lot of money because it requires going going to the government, paying fees and, and getting a lot of things uh, notarized. Yeah, and then it was definitely a, a stressful process. Like I can only imagine how much emotional turmoil and stress um, you and your family would have been going through at the time, especially your mother having to go through a lot of this some um, application procedure herself. During this process, can I ask, um, did it put any other sort of strain between you and your family members in terms of maybe even your father in this case? Yeah. Um, so at this point, like my father was still kind of making sure that he was uh, safe, right? My mom was was making this decision and you go into this decision, you make this decision, you go into this process not knowing whether it's going to be a yes or no. It, it takes a while. Even even after a year, you, you still don't know if it's going to happen or not, right? So, so in a way, it's like you have to prepare for this to, to take place, but you also have to prepare to see if it doesn't. And um, this kind of put a, a strain, um, you know, between my dad and my mom in a way that my dad was uh, a bit upset and uh, not too happy about us leaving, of course, because uh, it would be difficult for him. It would be difficult for him because we wouldn't be around and he wouldn't get to see us. And and part of the process, and this is part of the uh, Colombian government, is that if you have children and they're under the age of 18, they require approval from both parents to leave the country. And so this meant that my mom required my dad's signature to make sure that they would let us um, leave the country and come to Canada. It took him a while to to sign, but eventually he realized that this was for the better, that, you know, we were still in danger and that, you know, he wanted to make sure that nothing would happen to us, even if it meant that he wouldn't be able to see us for a while. Right. And sort of related to this emotionally or even anxiety inducing process, I can only imagine. Was there any sort of particular, I, I guess, like separation anxiety would be the term? A lot of refugees often experience this when they're going through such a process. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. I think a lot of refugees, they've, they've dealt with uh, very difficult um, memories in the sense that we've, we've been living in areas that have, you know, that there are altercations going on between the government and, and militia groups. And one of the things was that living in, in an area where there was constantly a war zone or where there was constantly, you know, um, 
threats of 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 these groups uh towards the government or or towards even people themselves it instilled a lot of fear and not knowing whether you could see someone again so uh, there's obviously separation anxiety playing uh, a role even in the beginning of being in this area and not knowing you know if your mom leaves for the day or if your dad leaves for the day if they're going to come back even after after a, a couple of hours or so because because you didn't know when you know a car bomb would go off or if there was going to be a shooting between the government and and the and the militia groups and you know innocent people and stand there people would uh would get would get hurt by this um so definitely having to leave and, and make this decision again and not knowing what when you could come back for for your safety and not knowing whether your your dad or or someone else was still going to be persecuted um because of you know this uh altercation between these two groups was was definitely an issue and it was definitely something difficult to deal with and it created a lot of separation anxiety to know that you know next time if i see my dad is he going to be alive or if or or am i not going to see him ever again yeah this is already just a story that sort of emphasizes the humongous like just this huge amount of trauma and emotional burden and just the this psychological sense of insecurity constantly and the idea of having to give up sort of your family and culture and have to like upheave all of that and start from scratch in a completely foreign country is like it's only sort of a it's such a astounding idea to even think about and just how much stress that would bring to any one individual let alone an entire family yeah so sort of segueing from your life before canada now I, i think it's a good time to talk about arriving in canada and what your life has been since then so when you first arrived in canada so for a lot of refugees they experience sort of culture shock for example not knowing the language and sort of a form of social uh ostracization so can i ask in terms of uh were were any of these issues like salient to you when you first arrived? Yeah, for sure. Um so the thing about arriving to Canada is that we got sent to New Brunswick and this is something that the government does because they they try to put refugees in in areas that require economical growth. So we got sent to um to New Brunswick and obviously over there you you stand out you there's not a lot of uh, diversity and the majority of people are acadian or of european descent and um, not knowing the language made it extremely difficult to know whether you could relate to other children that were in the area whether you know what were they like what do they like and 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 some things like that it was very difficult but uh, i remember that in five days of arriving i got placed in in a school right away compared to to other refugees i guess i was uh, privileged to have a person that's that spoke spanish that could help me um you know translate and and make sure that i was doing the work that the teacher um was telling us to do um unfortunately this this kind of felt that you know you you only had one way to communicate and um it was difficult because not only were you not able to talk to anyone and you already felt kind of alone and and segregated but even the only only person that i could trust and rely on uh was also not the best person Um, so an example was that he told me once that i was not supposed to bring my books and uh, a backpack the next day 
And I remember asking him, um, this was all in Spanish. I remember asking him, I was like, are you sure? Like, what are we doing tomorrow? Are you sure we're not supposed to bring any books or anything? And he said, no, no, we don't need any books. And so I showed up the next day without, without books and without a backpack. And the teacher looked at me really confused as to why I had nothing. And all the other kids around me had their books, had, had their homework ready. And I, I was really confused and I didn't know what to do because the person that was supposed to help me was a person that causes in the first place. And I was not able to explain myself to the teacher that this was the reason why this happened. And so it, it made you, you know, it made you feel more ostracized. It made you realize like there, there's a lot of people that maybe don't want the best for you and want to make your life a little bit harder uh, than it already is. Like there's also all this just sort of, um, implied discrimination in the environment that you must have been in. So related to that sort of experience of all these like cultural, linguistic, discriminatory barriers, have there been any discriminatory stereotypes of refugees you became aware of in your experiences here in yeah, Canada? Yeah, um, I, I guess for me, it was like more like little microaggressions as a child, but um, even, and even now that I've, you know, assimilated and become more you know, connected to what, to what Canada is. And I live in Toronto now. I, I can now see how some people feel about refugees, especially in New Brunswick. And, you know, when Trudeau decided that he was going to let in more refugees, there was a lot of backlash um, by some people. And, uh, and my mom had to hear a lot of that where, where people were like, they're going to take our money and they're going to live off welfare. And then what about our taxes and why do I have to pay for this person? And it, and it was really sad because, you know, they're saying that in front of someone that's a refugee and, and, and it makes things very, very difficult. And mm -hmm. they have this idea that, that a refugee doesn't have anything to provide that, you know, like you mentioned about immigrants, like that they don't have the skills that, you know, they're devalued, uh, they don't have anything to provide, right? And of course, like not knowing the language makes it even worse. But like, like I mentioned with the statistics, um, there's a lot that refugees can provide and even a lot of them create more, more jobs because they're more entrepreneurial than Canadians themselves. And so, yeah, so I remember that being a, being a big issue when there is a backlash. Yeah, I can only imagine hostilities there. So still speaking to the issue of discrimination against refugees, were there any economic challenges for you and your family upon arrival here in terms of like finding work, continuing to do well in school, having stable housing, those sort of things? Yeah, um, I feel like Canada does try to help you a little bit, but at the end, you're kind of left on your own. So a, a lot of people think that you're provided with some assistance. However, you, you do have to pay back the money that they've lent you for, for the travel expenses and for you to come, uh, come and settle down. And, and so you have to worry about uh, paying that back. And, and you're given usually a year to, to find a job. And so um, in this case for my mom, Unfortunately, she, she didn't speak the language and she was still uh, learning English. So she worked at uh, a hotel, um, you know, um, yeah. helping cleaning rooms. And this was very dis difficult for her because, again, the language barrier and she got made fun of. And there was uh, stereotypes um, that her coworkers would, would instill on her. And right. it's very difficult because it's kind of like you're, you're trying to deal with all these things at once. And so it's one having a job that perhaps doesn't doesn't pay enough pays minimum wage 
in New Brunswick, this, this might have been okay. However, uh, here in Toronto or other bigger cities, that's, that's not enough. And especially if you, have, if you have children, it's not gonna cover the necessities. In the meantime, you're also going to school to, to learn English. And you also have to, uh, you know, you know, go back to college and, and redo some of your high school courses to be able to, to get this degree. And so that requires um, a lot of effort. Thankfully, we were able to get some assistance for like government housing while my mom was going through this. But again, there is the issue that the discriminatory issue that that we're here for for the government to pay everything and, and for us to not provide anything. And um, contrary to popular belief, like at least in New Brunswick, from an anecdotal evidence, the majority of people where where European descendants in in these government housing areas um, there wasn't that many BIPOC it was difficult it's definitely not the best place a place to live right but you kind of make do with what you have and uh, eventually things will will work themselves out yeah I can only imagine what it's like to have this sort of rhetor the rhetoric of uh, just claiming oh people refugees steal off the welfare state and have that constantly thrusted in your face when it's really not true and you're living through all this like sort of insecure experience of having to like compete just struggle to even make ends meet for money and just the basic resources to make a living but you know um sort of you mentioned this um off the side but like what's life now compared to back then have things sort of improved yeah, it's definitely been over a decade and uh, I'm happy to say like my mom has graduated. She's gotten a degree and she's working full time and she's very happy and she remarried and now she is owning her own home. And, um, you know, my siblings and I have finished school and we're all working and providing back to the economy. So hoping that that clarifies certain stereotypes uh, from refugees. Yeah, I think it's good to sort of end things on a hopeful note there with your story since, um, you know, it's sort of like you guys have overcome so much trauma, just having to like upheaval everything and lose one sense of like home and security and have to rebuild it from scratch here. So what's life now um, for you compared to back then, now that you've sort of come all this way to Toronto now? Yeah, so we've been able to settle and uh, we do feel a sense of belonging and we found uh, uh, communities that, that accept us here in Canada. And my mom, she, she knows English. She, uh, she has a degree now and she's working full time and she's remarried and, and she has uh, a home. She owns her own home. So um, it's nice to see that, you know, she finally has a place where she can uh, feel safe and, and have, um, you know, stability, which is one of the main things that we lack as, as refugees. Um, my, my siblings and I, we've, um, we've graduated and we're all working and, and making sure that, that we're making a living and we're, uh, we're really happy, yeah. Yeah, and we've been able to uh, go back to Colombia now and, and visit my dad and family, knowing that, you know, we can do so safely and, and not have any harm done to us. And I feel like that's the best uh, that we can get, um, you know, having stability and, uh, and being able to see the family that you weren't able to see for a really long time. That's amazing. Rebuilding, managing to rebuild your sense of home and security after having gone through all those difficulties as a, a refugee for you and your entire family is a real triumph. 
that so many people often struggle to attain. So congrats to you and your family for managing all that, despite all the odds. So I think, yeah, like overall from all that we've talked about today, it's sort of like political and economic insecurity often leads people abroad to want to seek safety and sort of better opportunities abroad, often in destinations like Canada, who have sort of an established uh, immigration refugee framework. It's often people who are trapped in sort of cycles of political and economic instability and sort of countries where governments that can't really control any of those issues essentially and people wanting to seek a normal life elsewhere yeah and um, there's definitely a lot that um that immigrants and refugees uh experience um you know like the emotional and psychological challenges and baggage from the process of having to leave or flee your own country and and have to leave some family behind and the discrimination by the host society just being here and having to face some discrimination by some people that that do not understand your story and that think that you're not providing back to society the idea of having to start over like uh having your education and professional experience devalued uh is is something that you know really really hits you and, and starting over take, takes a lot and especially as an as an older adult yeah, exactly. Especially for like your single mom who came here with all of you to look after too. And, you know, despite these challenges, though, it is the case that immigrants and refugees still manage to obtain sort of upward mobility, sort of better education, income, and overall better opportunities that they have here that they may not necessarily have elsewhere. And I'd like to think also sort of mental resilience from having gone through all these challenges. Yeah, and it's really nice to know that, you know, as immigrants and refugees, hopefully we can... Uh, we can use this resilience to to improve society and and make sure that you know our countries are changing to to make sure that they provide stability but even though we focus on the issues of canadian immigrants and refugees in this episode um, we'd like to conclude by saying that our experiences will also create opportunities to connect with other exploited minority groups especially indigenous canadians who are also going through issues on a lack of representation so with that, we'd like to wrap up this episode and say thank you for tuning in. This is Mitch and Sophia signing off. Goodbye.